welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Coraline Ada Emke, who is currently a principal engineer at Stitch Fix and co-author of the upcoming book, The Compassionate Coder. Coraline, welcome to Maintainable. Hey, thank you. You're no stranger to working on other teams' code bases. I would love to talk with you about what it means to be a good guest in those scenarios. But first, how does your team define and talk about technical debt? We've actually started a working group to address the topic of technical debt. And one of the things that came out of the working group, not all debt is bad. As long as you're paying it down to some degree, not all code that is inefficient or less than optimal is important enough to focus your efforts on. And we decided to call it, instead of technical debt, technical friction, which I think brings the term into a little bit more focus in terms of what about the legacy code base is slowing down your team. Right. And what are some common, say, symptoms or signs that maybe your technical friction is hindering your your engineering team? Friction is really hard to measure. What we're doing to kind of understand that concept a little better is surveying different teams to ask them where their pain points are. And some of the themes that come up regularly are inconsistent code styles and CI and testing in particular. I think when we're working on a Greenfield app and we can run a test locally, you have a fast feedback loop and that feels really good and leads to writing good code. When you have to push your changes up to CI and wait seven, eight, nine, ten minutes for the feedback on how the code you wrote is performing, that's friction. Mm, okay. You've described yourself as a code archaeologist. How did that come about? Archaeologist is an interesting term. I was actually, uh, when I was a kid, I thought about becoming an archaeologist. And I was inspired in part by, of course, the Indiana Jones movies. But in practice, archaeology isn't like that at all. You don't snatch the golden idol off the altar and run from the giant boulder that's rolling down the ramp towards you. Real archaeology is about getting excited about finding a piece of pottery and understanding the culture that produced it and getting clues about its meaning and significance from where it was found and where it was found in relation to other objects. And I think that's a really apt metaphor for legacy code too, because you're you're stumbling across these pieces, these fragments of someone else's code, and you have to understand the context in which it was created and how it relates to the rest of the code base. And that's hard work. I think that's the kind of hard work that a, a typical archaeologist does. And if we think about our role as the code archaeologist, that puts the focus not on whether the code is good or bad. An archaeologist wouldn't say, oh, this is an ugly pot, right? You would try and understand what it means in the context of the work you're trying to do or the culture you're trying to understand. Right. And that's interesting. And I think, you know, how that can play. I, I always think of, I, I share that where I've, I've often wondered if archaeology might have been an interesting career path for me. And, and then outside of I'm being way too fair skinned to be out in the sun that much or we need like a huge, huge hat for that. But the idea of being able to like find small fragments of you know fossils or you know, bringing up like examples of 
prior civilizations and such and and cultures and, and like how there's story there that comes out of that. And like, how do you try to piece together a story about what were they thinking? And it's always been an interesting angle about how I also spend a lot of time working on legacy code bases. And that's part of something I actually really enjoy is being like, not that like, oh, look, I found this thing that's really archaic. And like, look how stupid the previous developers were. It's more like, what what were they working with? What kind of constraints were they dealing with? What were they focusing on at that point in time? And what what tools did they have access to? And it's it's interesting. And like you know, as an example, I was I'm working with uh, we have some junior developers right now that are working on a rather large Ruby on Rails upgrade for a client that's back on 2.1, which is pretty crazy. A long time ago, they're working to get it to 3.0. Even how they talk about how. Rails was back then and like, how did you get things done with this? And it was actually like a really great tool back then. It's interesting to seeing other people feel like have some of those same kind of moments of like trying to understand how things used to be, even if I could, I actually remember when that used to be like that and it doesn't feel like that far away, but I think it's always like that context of how relative it is to you as an engineer and, and people coming in and stuff. So one thing you touched on there that I want to, I want to kind of emphasize is that code is telling you a story. Code is not about facts. Code is about a process of how this particular piece of code came into being, the people behind it, as you said, the context, the constraints, the operating conditions, all of those things are really important. And I think when you consider that angle, you're less judgmental about the code. I never use terms like good code and bad code because code shouldn't be subject to a value judgment. It should be understood in context. Sure. And, you know, one of the things I'm always curious about, like, well, does it work? Does it, is it solving how we're trying to interpret the problem that they were solving at that point in time? Has it been working? And, and is it bad if it's maybe not the way that I would do it, do it now or something? It's just like a, it's a, it's a, it can be a little bit of a challenge. Do you find that there's often a difference be- between how, say, maybe a junior or mid-level developer might talk about technical debt or friction compared to, say, a senior developer? I think that the more senior you are, as a developer, and also how long you've been at a particular company, colors your view of the code that you're working with. Maybe you have made value judgments. Maybe you have that instinct to burn it all down. But when you're working with an early career developer or someone who's new to the company, they have a fresh perspective on the code. And they're going to be able to point out things that maybe you no longer are aware of. They have a fresh perspective and they're comparing it to maybe the greenfield apps that they were working on in their coding bootcamp or their previous company. So I think it's really important to listen to their perspectives, but also guide them toward a more compassionate understanding of the code base that they're working on. That's kind of your responsibility as a senior part of that team. I think it's always an interesting aspect that a lot of junior developers, they go through that process in most tutorials and boot camps are typically you're building greenfield projects and then you get that first job, it's probably unlikely that you're going to start day one at a new startup where you have no code written. You're usually going to be thrown into something existing and that is like a completely different set of skills you need to work around. And so it's always interesting to kind of how people go through that transition process. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about empathy. In our industry, there's been a lot of conversations over the years about empathy for our applications and users our customers and clients, but you've also spoken quite a bit about the importance of empathy towards your teammates and previous developers on a code base. Why do you feel so strongly about this? I strongly believe that we write code for humans first and computers second. 
if your code does not communicate well with the people who read it later, you have a problem. And I would say that's actually the definition of a legacy system, is a system that has stopped talking to the developers in a way that they can understand. I think when you view things through an empathy lens, it can keep you from being too clever. When you write code, it's not an exercise in who is the smartest or who can write the least amount of code to solve a problem necessarily. It's about understandability and recognizing that your teammates now, as well as future developers, are going to be looking at your work and trying to understand what it's doing. If you write with them in mind, that's going to change the way you write your code. Let's take a quick step back. Let's learn a little bit more about you. Aside from being a notable Ruby on Rails developer and Ruby hero, you created the Contributor Covenant, which has been adopted by more than 200,000 open source projects. Can you share what that is and what inspired you to start that? Sure. In 2014, I believe it was, my friend Ash Dryden, back then, and this seems like such a a no-brainer now, but back then, um, conferences were not really known for having codes of conduct. A few conferences kind of pioneered codes of conduct for their participants, but there wasn't widespread adoption. And in fact, even the idea of having a code code of conduct for a conference was somewhat controversial and was a divisive issue. And I've been doing open source since the early 2000s um, in Perl initially, to show my age. Um, and uh, I thought about I thought about what a code of conduct really does. And I think it's about establishing community values and being really explicit about them. And also planning for how you're going to react if someone acts in a way that's not in line with those values. And conferences are really important. They bring a lot of different people together, different skill levels, and are learning opportunities. But I thought, what about the day-to-day of working on an open source project? If you're a maintainer, what kind of community do you want to have? What behavior do you expect from your contributors and other participants? And I saw a need there to really be allow maintainers to be explicit about their values and their vision for what the community would be. And so I wrote the Contributor Covenant, and uh, it's really taken off. As as you said, there are at least 100,000 and maybe as many as 200,000. It's really difficult to count adopters. And I'm really pleased to see that organizations like Google, Microsoft, Intel, um, the Linux Foundation, all of these really big players in the open source space have adopted, if not Contributor Covenant, then at least some other code of conduct. So the idea has taken off. It's still, unfortunately, controversial in some some, uh, populations. And I get a a continuing stream of backlash and negativity about my work in that space. But codes of conduct are winning. And I think they've really shaped open source um, how it is now and will continue to shape it in the future. That's great. As a confession, I have an open source project called Oh My Z Shell that didn't have a code of conduct until last night. So while preparing for this, I actually was like, <laughs> it's, it's been on a to-do list for a while. And so I finally sent my co-maintainer a pull request last night, including the contributor covenant to for Oh My Z Shell, and they got merged earlier this morning. So thank you for that. One more to the to the list there. Also, I believe you're working on a book. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, the book is called The Compassionate Coder. I'm co-authoring it with a woman named Naomi Freeman. It really builds on the principle that code is for humans and that we're rebelling against the idea of a developer as a lone genius working in isolation, this sort of media portrayal of 
know, the lonely hacker who is working out of their basement all the hours of the day to produce something of value. Code is very social. Writing code is a social activity. As I mentioned, you're writing code for people. When you're interacting with people, social skills really matter. And I think the most important social skill you can develop is empathy. I think empathy is a slippery word, so we're very careful to define our terms early on in the book. But it's about making a sincere connection with someone and an open and free exchange of who you are and what you're feeling and what your motivations are and what your values are. And I think we need more of that in our industry. I think as we move toward accepting models of open source as being large-scale projects or the work on your team at your company being the effort of multiple people coming together, it's really important that we value each other as human beings and try and make that sincere connection. I was reviewing the, I think the sample chapter you have online at the, the Compassionate Coder. You touched on a bit about the hiring process in that, right? How do you feel about when people talk about, you know, I think when you, you were talking about empathy and thinking about your peers and, and, and like how people need to really relate to each other. I think for a long time in our industry and myself included, I think I've maybe had to come to learn from my past self. You know, you think of like these people with technical skill sets, like as a baseline, and then you're like, but then there's like unicorn type people that also have good soft skills as like this separate thing. What's your take on that? I think the more senior you get, the more those so-called soft skills, which are actually very hard skills, are important. I think it's also important to note that emotional intelligence is a skill that you can develop just like the kind of intelligence that we think about typically with writing code. And empathy is a practice. No one's good at it. No one's born with it. It's something that you do. It's not something that you have. Just as you have to stay current and up to date with new technologies, you have to stay current and up to date with the way you relate to other people and really focus on that and really put some value around that. And that's for everyone. Yeah, it's a good point. And it's interesting because I think it's like, you know, being someone that employs people and we've done different sorts of like self-assessment tests and things like, you know, Myers-Briggs stuff in the past or like the Clifton Strengths Finders. And there's a lot of emphasis on like, let's highlight each other's strengths. And sometimes you go through that process and there's people that maybe their emotional intelligence as is not one of their strengths. And so it kind of gets called out upon a little bit like, well, you need to work on trying to make up for that in some ways. But then there's also literature that says, just try to focus on their strengths. And so there's almost at a little bit of at odds at times of trying to figure out how do I emphasize someone's strengths, but also not just dismiss like, hey, you, I really do believe you need to be working more on saying being more empathetic when you're approaching your teammates about like some sorts of topics related to their code or something. Yeah, that's really important. And a couple of uh, thoughts on that. You should value kindness in your organization. If you're not putting equal value, and this might be controversial, but I think kindness is just as important as intelligence. The ability to code is just obviously an important factor in hiring someone. But if you hire a brilliant asshole, they're going to be detrimental to your culture. They're going to be normalizing behavior that you don't want, and they're going to be a problem. It's, it's true. One of our core values at Planet Argon is be delightful. We have a no asshole rule, and that's whether it's our clients or employees. I think we do a decent enough job of filtering that out through the you know the hiring process. But sometimes those people you know could come in and they they find that they're there three to six months later. And you didn't really see how you. And I think it's important for the team to reflect on those experiences and trying to figure out. Like, it's not that you can always detect that that's going to happen through the interview process. 
nobody's checking a box saying I'm an asshole, but it's it's something that companies do need to ad- address and stuff if people are not being kind or empathetic towards their peers, because that can be really devastating culturally. It's harder to probably, because on the flip side, I think it's probably more expensive to replace the person or the people that you might lose by allowing that to kind of flourish in your in your team. So Yeah, I want to point out there's something that we do at Stitch Fix for screening for kindness as part of the interview process. We have senior people, one of their take-home exercises, we assume they have technical competence if they're a senior engineer or principal engineer or what have you, but we give them a code review exercise. We've crafted the code that they're reviewing from the perspective of an early career developer who's maybe been exposed to certain patterns like service patterns, but isn't getting it exactly right. We ask them to write a code review. We really gauge, like, are they trying to outsmart a person who wrote who wrote the code, or are they being gentle teachers? Are they reinforcing company values? Are they being kind? Are they being constructive? How would I feel being on the receiving end of their code review if I was an early career developer? That's, that's awesome. I like that idea. I might have to reflect out on that a little bit more with my team and think about our own hiring process. This, I think this is a good point to kind of expand on this a little bit. If, you, if you're open to it, perhaps we can talk through a few tangible scenarios for our listeners that might be junior, mid, senior level developers. And I, I wanted to touch on a few different examples of where I think invoking empathy might be really appropriate and like just kind of give you get your thoughts on a few things. So let's start, let's start with the following scenario. A senior engineer lands a new job at a startup that's maybe been around for three to five years. There's a team of, say, five to 10 mid-level developers, maybe one to two that have been there since the first year. The new engineer has been hired to help them navigate their next projected stage of growth in management, is concerned about how brittle some aspects of the platform is. The engineer starts off their, you know, the new job and sees the platform is running on some older framework versions of things. There isn't much automated testing in place. And some of the developers seem to be focused on putting out one fire after another. In your opinion, what do you think the senior engineer should consider before they start proposing ways to deal with these problems? I think it's really important to get a sense of how other developers feel about the code base and really understand in very practical terms where the pain points are. That comes from talking to people and looking over their code to see how they're adapting to the less optimal conditions that the code base is in. Especially if you're a senior developer, you have a responsibility of working with your business partners, working with your stakeholders to prioritize cleaning up and firming up and strengthening that code base. I often talk about a shadow backlog. I think team backlogs are usually written by managers, maybe with hopefully some input from the team themselves. You know, the business has prioritized this feature or we have this strategic objective. We need you to implement it. If you're not taking into consideration the state of your technology and the state of your code base, you're going to find that there's a lot of friction in implementing new features and feature development won't happen as quickly. So if you have a backlog of practical things that could actually be accomplished within a couple of sprints or within a quarter, I think it's your responsibility to make sure that stakeholders have visibility into that and know it's important and know that it's impacting the business and that they're willing to work with you to address those things even as you move the application forward. So they shouldn't just come in and try to play hero? Yeah, the hero complex is actually the opposite of empathy. With the hero complex, and we talk about this in the book, we define empathy as a spectrum. And somewhere on that spectrum is codependence, which is kind of a loaded term, but in our definition, it's about putting the other before the self. 
if you're sacrificing yourself for the team, you're not really opening up emotional connections with them. You are not really bringing your whole self to the operation and you're going to get your stuff in trouble. You're going to create a workload that's unsustainable. You're not going to be happy. You're not going to be satisfied with the work that you're doing. It's going to be an endless slog. You're going to kill yourself by trying to fix it. That's great. So another scenario, perhaps a mid-level engineer has been invited to be part of the hiring committee to recruit another software engineer for the team. During the interview process, the candidate is asked about their experience with writing automated tests. The candidate shares that they've done a little a bit of it at times, but for the past few years, their current employer's application has mostly had a broken build that has been largely ignored by the team. What do you believe the engineer in this scenario should consider before asking a follow-up question? You have to meet people where they are and you have to understand, do they value, if your organization values automated testing and low ceremony deploys, you have to get a sense of how the person will react to that environment. We all carry some degree of trauma or baggage from our previous employers. We're hopefully looking for an improvement with every job change that we make. So I think if you emphasize this is a value that's important to us and you get their reaction to it, is it something that excites them? Is it something that they don't see the value in? You want to hire people who share your values. And if your values include good testing, then you want to not necessarily screen for people who are experts in testing, but screen for people who see its value and are willing to learn. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, you you touched on trauma and baggage from previous jobs. I think we often, you know, as people that might be in a hiring position, don't often really consider that, like, what was the environment they ended up in? Let's say it was like their first job as a software developer. And then maybe the other developers were, you know, talked about the testing as in, in a way of there's not enough time for it. And that's just what they've been telling themselves for several years. And we may have our own opinions on that, but that might be what they're, they've only been exposed to. And so they're like, well, that's, you know, you kind of model your behavior off of, you know, the people that you work around or the people that hopefully are mentoring you in some ways. But, you know, some people don't get the exposure to the types of things that your company needs right now. And so I think it's also a matter of trying to figure out, are you hiring someone for to come in and check all the boxes off today? Or does this person have the aptitude as well and is, is going to be hungry to figure out how to learn these new things in your organization and then give them that opportunity? So I think there's often kind of like how risk adverse you are with as a company and thinking about like being mindful that when they're coming to you, they're not just ready to run there. They might need a little bit of coaching on how you do things as an organization. And you need to do that anyways, just because it's not just how you code things. It's how you work as a team and processes are going to be different between each organization. It's an important thing to think about, I think, before you're just writing and dismissing them too quickly, because I think that can also limit your candidate pool quite a bit based on the fact that you kind of ended up at a company that was really unorganized about how they do all this stuff, sorry, you're kind of screwed over with your career now. And that's not necessarily their fault. It's important to hire learners, not just experts. And But you also have to ask yourself, like, can you support a learner on your team? Do you have a learning culture? Do you have people who are willing and able to mentor? And that's a hard question to answer. We, I think we all say, well, of course we do. But what's the, what's the evidence? Where is it written down that you value that? And is that part of someone's job description? Maybe you're not the best environment for a learner. If you're not, I think you have work to do on your culture. You don't want to put someone in a position where they're going to fail because no one's there to support them and help them in their learning. That's true. 
thinking about that, like how do you become an organization and you kind of have to throw yourself into it a little bit and you need to learn how to become a learning organization too. And so I've noticed that with, especially with like internships with organizations and I've written, talked about that quite a bit in the last year, but I think there's a lot of fear that companies, like I'm not going to have time to be a good mentor. And I think it comes from a source of, I don't want to let down an intern. Like when I've talked with different companies, that is always like a pretty recurring theme. I don't want to let them down. I don't want to give them a bad experience. I don't know, or I don't have the time. I think if you take a step back, I'm like, but what kind of company organization do we want to be? What kind of engineering team do we want to be? If you want to have an environment where you can bring people in with different sets of skill level and give them a path to grow in that space, then I think that it's an interesting thing because I feel like most often one of the things that helps mid and senior level developers level up is actually having exposure to more junior people to provide some guidance to. And when they're having to explain how things work or why we did things a certain way, that they kind of learn from themselves a little bit through that process. But I think it's, you have to kind of pilot those programs and be willing to maybe stumble a couple times through that process, but. You have to understand that everyone has something to learn and everyone has something to teach. And that by teaching you are reinforcing your own skills and your own knowledge. And hopefully you're listening to their questions. The more senior we get, we see patterns more readily. And maybe we don't think about whether something actually matches a pattern. We have this reflex to solve a problem in a certain way. And I found that having to explain myself to someone who's earlier in their career can help me challenge my assumptions about the code that I write. If we're open to it, we can learn a lot from working with early career developers. One more scenario. Let's say a developer is tasked with fixing a critical bug that appeared in production early in the morning. After several hours of trying to figure out the problem, they reach out to their peer channel or wherever they're interacting with each other, whether they're remote or in person, for some advice. Another developer sees the request and quickly recalls a similar bug that popped up a few months ago, which they had shared the solution in a team meeting, which that other developer that's working on that particular bug appears to have forgotten. What do you believe that engineers should consider before they start sharing that previous solution? They should acknowledge the fact that the developer who's working on fixing the bug has put significant time and effort and thought into how to solve it. They should probably ask, do you remember when this problem came up before? Here's what we did. What do you think about trying that again? I think the use of pronouns is really important. We should focus on we instead of you or I. Acknowledge that there's tribal knowledge and maybe not everyone internalizes that tribal knowledge quite as easily. So remind them gently, offer to work with them. Also ask yourself the question is, is this really the same kind of bug or am I using pattern matching to decide that this previous solution was right? And maybe they've already considered it. Maybe they've eliminated that as a possibility. So you have to ask questions instead of being directive. Well, that's great. So, okay, I really appreciate you navigating these scenarios with our audience. It would seem to me that empathy can play a really important role in improving the long-term maintainability of an organization's collective code bases. With that, I have a few last questions for you. What book do you find yourself most often recommending to software developers? It depends on what I'm trying to do with an early career developer. I do a lot of mentoring at my work. I mentor six individuals and I have one-on-ones with engineers at varying levels. I say about 25% of my time as a principal is spent working with other people and helping them level up. And some people want technical mentorship. 
in which case I will turn to a patterns book generally. I think patterns are overlooked. They've fallen out of fashion to some degree, but they can be valuable problem-solving tools. One thing I've done in the past is either work through patterns of enterprise architecture or um, design patterns in Ruby to help people expand their way of thinking about different problems and recognizing patterns and good solutions to some of those problems. The Ruby Way is also a great book that I highly recommend. The other thing I encourage people to do, and this is especially important for career changers, but I think everyone has this to some degree, is don't think of software as something that you're starting at ground zero with. Think about how your life skills and your previous employment experience can be applied to the problems you're facing as a software developer. Everyone has these basic life skills and these things that they've learned through interacting with other people and really emphasize that those things are still valuable. Even if you don't know the answer to a technical problem, if you have good interpersonal skills, you can find that answer and you can learn something in the process. So really focusing on drawing from different sources, understanding different metaphors, and improving through a continuous process of learning. And whatever mechanism gets you there, whatever mechanism for that is best suited to the person. And where can people keep up with you online and your projects? I tweet about a variety of topics, some of them technical. My Twitter handle is Coraline Ada. I also do blogging and have links to my talks at where.coraline.codes. Great. It's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Coraline. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, share some of my thoughts and opinions about this topic. It's something that I care very deeply about, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. 